This is Kona Bible Church. Thanks for listening. We pray that you will experience God's blessing as you consider Pastor Brian's latest message from his series, Wrestling with God, from the book of Genesis. We are in a series here in Genesis. Uh, We've titled it Wrestling with God. Will you trust his word? I mean, that's such a simple question to ask, but then the layers uh, and the dynamic of that phrase to really kind of come back and, and examine that um, is, is very deep. Today, we find ourselves in Genesis chapter 22, and so if you would like, you can turn to Genesis chapter 22, and we will read uh, a bit of Genesis chapter 22. It says this, sometime after these things, God tested Abraham. Let's just pause right there. Did you know that God will test your faith? It talks about it all the time. He tests the uh, Israelites when they were in Egypt to see if they would remain true uh, to to his faithfulness. Um, And so here, Abraham is being tested. Uh, We get tested. There is one thing that we do not get from God. Tempting. Tempting is different than testing, and so uh, God will not tempt us, but he will test us. And so uh, if, if you think that you're um, kind of in this, you know, just this Christianity where you're kind of like, ah, it's something I do on the side, or it's a, God, won't, God won't let that happen, right? And that's why we talk about wrestling with God, because he is, the name Israel, Jacob's name gets changed to Israel, which means he wrestles with God, or God contends with him, with us. And so there's this aspect of going, even if you don't want to wrestle with God, God's going to wrestle with you. He will contend with you. And part of that is that he will test you. And so here is a story of of God testing Abraham. He said to him, Abraham, here I am, Abraham replied. God said, take your son, your only son, whom you love, Isaac, and go to the land of Moriah. Offer him up there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains, which I will indicate to you. Early in the morning, Abraham got up and saddled his, do you want me to say it like my dad, or do you want me to say it the normal way? Donkey. Saddled up his donkey. That's how my dad would say it. Okay. I was stumbling over this passage in the the Lutheran service today, because I kept thinking of how my dad says it, but I couldn't, I was in the middle of reading the passage, but now I'm just out, it's out, donkey. He saddled up his donkey. I do that out of respect for you, Dad. Um, he took two of his, and wooder. He also says wooder. It's weird, weird little things that he says. Across, and I always ask him, well, how do you spell that? And he says A-C-R-O-S-S. And I'm like, well, why are you saying it with a T? It's strange. Sorry. Early in the morning, Abraham got up and saddled his donkey. He took two of his young servants with him along with his son Isaac. When he had cut the wood for the burnt offering, he started out for the place God had spoken to him about. On the third day, Abraham caught sight of the place in the distance. So he said to his servants, you two stay here with the donkey while the boy and I go up there. We will worship and then return to you. Abraham took the wood for the burnt offering and put it on his son Isaac. Then he took the fire and the knife in his hand and the two of them walked on together. Isaac said to his father, Abraham, my father, what is it, my son? He replied, here's the fire and the wood, Isaac said, but where's the lamb for the burnt offering? 
God will provide for himself the lamb for the burnt offering, my son, Abraham replied. The two of them continued on together. When they came to the place God had told him about, Abraham built the altar there and arranged the wood on it. Next, he tied up his son Isaac and placed him on the altar on top of the wood. Then Abraham reached out his hand, took the knife, and prepared to slaughter his son. But the Lord's angel called to him from heaven, Abraham, Abraham, here I am, he answered. Do not harm the boy, the angel said. Do not do anything to him, for now I know that you fear God because you did not withhold your son, your only son, from me. Abraham looked up and saw, him, saw behind him a ram caught in the bushes by its horns. So he went over and got the ram and offered it up as a burnt offering instead of his son. And Abraham called the name of that place, The Lord Provides. It is said to this day, in the mountain of the Lord, provision will be made. The Lord's angel called to Abraham a second time from heaven and said, I solemnly swear by my own name, decrees the Lord, that because you have done this and have not withheld your son, your only son, I will indeed bless you and I will greatly multiply your descendants so that they will be as countless as the stars in the sky or the grains of sand on the seashore. Your descendants will take possession of the strongholds of their enemies. Because you have obeyed me, all the nations of the earth will pronounce blessings on one another using the name of your descendants. Then Abraham returned to his servants, and they set out together for Beersheba, where Abraham stayed. After these things, Abraham was told, Milcah also has borne children to your brother Nahor, Uz, the firstborn, his brother Buz, Kemuel, the father of Aram, Hesed, Hazo, Pildash, Jidlaf, and Bethuel. Now Bethuel had become the father of Rebekah. These were the eight sons Milcah bore to Abraham's brother Nahor. His concubine, whose name was Rumah, also bore him children Teba, Geham, Tehash, and Maacah. Well, uh, as interesting as the uh, sacrifice of Isaac or near sacrifice of Isaac is, what I really want to focus on here is these last couple of verses talking about uh, the descendants of... No, she knows. She knows I was just joking. We, we need to focus on this near sacrifice of Isaac. Fine. You're such a killjoy. I could have made some interesting points about that. Here we are. We are in Genesis. We have been talking about this God who has created mankind in his image. Male and female, he has created them. And then he, he said, I, I want you to be like me. And what did God do? God created the world, and he gave it order, purpose, and life. And yet he didn't, he didn't create, you know, deal with all the chaos. He left chaos for us to tackle. And so he said, I want you to go into the chaos, uh, and I want you to bring order, purpose, and life to that chaos. And I want you to do it in faith communities. Uh, the, the smallest of these faith communities is a husband and a wife. Uh, and so he sends these, them out, but Adam and Eve are the first kind of couple to take on the chaos, but unfortunately, they add a new dimension to the chaos, and they corrupt the chaos. And so uh, Abraham comes along after them, and now he's sending people out and into the chaos, into a corrupted chaos. 
Now, the corrupted chaos brings with it certain amount of fear uh, that, Abraham, uh, that Adam and Eve didn't face, but Abraham is now facing some of these basic fears, uh, things like provision and protection. And, and we saw this immediately as God kind of speaks to him, go out from the land that you know and from your family and go to an unknown destination. Uh, and, and really what God is asking Abraham is, Trust me to provide and protect for you. Now, he's not just asking Abraham to do that. He's asking all people of faith for all time to go into the corrupted chaos and bring order, purpose, and life to it, all the while facing those fears about provision and protection and doing so by trusting God uh, to do what he says he will do. Imagine that. He, he's asked us to go into a corrupted uh, chaos, and yet he comes back and he goes, but I'll be the one to provide and protect for you. Well, that's good news. Now, if only we could trust him to do it, because those basic fears that well up inside of us confront us regularly on provision and protection. That's not just a one-time battle that we have to deal with. It is a regular issue uh, that we have to, well, some might say, wrestle with God on uh, as he contends with us. And so once again here, we're given a story that I think highlights this provision and protection. Now, remember for who, who Abraham is, he does not have the word of God. There is no written word of God for him. So his relationship is very personal. God is speaking to him regularly. Now, regularly might be a bit of a stretch. It's regular to the reader, right? But as we are flipping pages, years and decades are going by. So what appears to be regular to us may be actually for him pretty irregular. Uh, we kind of get to know Abraham when he's 75 years old. Uh, and then at the age of 100, he gives birth, uh, his wife gives birth to Isaac. <laughs> yeah. uh, I had some men nod at me. They were like, don't you say that he gave birth. A uh, woman gave birth. Yes, she gave birth, right? And so now we've had 25 years, and we've gone from chapter 12 to now we're in chapter 22, 10 chapters. We've seen God speak directly to Abraham a number of times during this 10 page, these 10 chapters, but the reality is we're, we're talking about 25 years of his life. Uh, and so, now we aren't given probably every time, maybe, uh, but we are given these selected stories of when God has spoken to him and invited him to, to believe and to act. Well, uh, I think that's important to recognize here because he doesn't have a book to fall back onto. He doesn't have God's word to be able to help him understand how he should be going through life. Uh, and so he's basing some of this stuff on oral tradition, probably being handed down to him. There is probably some aspect of, of this God who Adam and Eve worshiped and sacrificed to being passed down generation to generation. We see Job would have been a contemporary of Abraham. And Job certainly has an understanding of who God is. His friends sure don't. Uh, they don't have the correct worldview of, of who God is. And, and so as we hear these stories, remember that God is, is announcing to Abraham in some senses, I want to create 
a faith community, and I'm starting with you, and what, what you really need to know is you need to know how I engage with the world. Now, that's important to note because he's living in a corrupted world, right? He's engaging with a chaos that has been corrupted, and so uh, Abraham is, is engaging with people and people groups who worship other gods, and it, as for some of them, the worship includes child sacrifice, Right? So this is something that he would have been, you know, touched his life. It would have been happening uh, with his knowledge. Uh, and so you, you see what happened in Sodom and Gomorrah, the things that he uh, was able to witness, uh, the amount of evil that he witnessed. Well, this is just another one of those things. And here God is coming along and he's forming Abraham's worldview for him so that he knows how to be able to engage. You saw it in the prayers, Right? For Sodom and Gomorrah. Remember, Abraham didn't even really know how to pray for Lot and his family. That's what he wanted. He wanted God to be able to spare Lot and his family. And so you remember the whole process of him negotiating with God in his prayers? Well, that's because nobody's really taught Abraham, here's how you pray. Here's how you're in relationship with me. And here's who I am. I'm a God that will spare the righteous uh, I, I won't deal with the righteous in the same way that I deal with the unrighteous, right? That's part of the worldview that is being formed. Today, in this passage, is God coming down and, and telling us, telling Abraham in specific, but it's not just Abraham about who he is, it, because Abraham, the promise given to him is for all people to be blessed by Abraham uh, through Abraham, so Abraham is supposed to learn these things about God and then pass these things on to all the families of the earth, and not just the ones living then, but all the way down to you and I. So this passage here is not just for Abraham to form his worldview, but it's to form our worldview. And this is so important to recognize. Now, some of this might be obvious to us uh, since we've been Christians for so long and we're very good people. But here is uh, what's going on here. And we'll, we'll make some oppor uh, opportunities to make some, some uh, observations. The first thing is you just cannot escape this idea of provision and protection. Uh, it's all through Genesis. And he is coming back repeatedly saying... I'm a God who's trustworthy to provide and protect for you. Now, other gods and other religions might also have a worldview that would say, oh, we will provide and protect for you as well. But God in this passage is demonstrably, demonstrably setting himself apart from the other gods. Because this story is demonstrably saying that the Lord's provision is not accomplished with evil. He does not need to do evil things in order to provide for people. And this story is kind of going along the same path that other gods might also kind of support. Oh, go sacrifice your son, then I will provide for you. And so here Abraham is, he's engaging in the world and he's touched and engaged on some of these things. Remember how often he says, the reason I'm lying about Sarah being my wife is because I assume you people don't know God, right? There's this kind of assumption by the way that they live and the way that they engage with people that there's nothing holy in the lands that I'm kind of wandering into and out of. 
And so here, he gets this word from the Lord that says, go and sacrifice your son, and it must have him at least thinking. But let's remember this about who Abraham is. Abraham is a God who believes uh, in a God who is able to raise the dead back to life. You, you just cannot, uh, it's a travesty that Jewish people, for as long as their history is, do not, have not, like, I don't even understand it. This is exactly what Paul points out in Romans, that he has to believe in a God who's able to raise the dead back to life because he raises Sarah's womb back to life in order to fulfill the promise. And so now Hebrews chapter 11 says the same thing, that because uh, Abraham believes in this God who's able to raise the dead back to life, he takes his son and, and is willing to go and sacrifice him uh, to this test because he believes that God will raise him back to life. Now, you even see some, some things in the, in the language here in the text. It's, it says about the servants who are with him on the journey, right? They stop, they see the, the, the place of sacrifice in the, in the distance, and he says, you two stay here with the donkey while the boy and I go up there. We will worship and then return to you, right? What is his confidence? His confidence is, oh, I, I may be sacrificing the boy, but we will worship and we are going to return to you. You see, that's exactly what Hebrews chapter 11 is saying, that Abraham had a confidence in a God who's able to raise the dead back to life. So while his worldview is formed in this way, I was just going, well, that's kind of a crazy thing you're asking me to do, but I will do it because I know that you've already demonstrated your trustworthiness with my wife, who is 90 years old and past the point of childbearing, when she became pregnant and was able to fulfill the promise God had for her. Now, uh, we, though, are hearing this story, and we should be not engaged quite the same way Abraham is. This story is there to shock us. This story is there to horrify us in, in some respects. And, and you can kind of get the, the sense here of just kind of walking through this and going, wow, this is crazy. I mean, imagine the counseling bills, right? I mean, I'm not even talking about tying the son up and putting him on the author and, you know, right? Just dad lying to his son. Hey, dad, uh, I see the wood. I see the fire. Where's the, where's the, uh, where's the sacrifice, the animal? Um, Lord, Lord will provide. You, you, he's going to provide you. Uh, just imagine the, the counseling bills for the lie that he told his son, right? Because Abraham's going up there with all intents to, to sacrifice his son. Well, forget about all the binding, the bondage. The, now, for Abraham, this story is, is influencing him in, with a different worldview that he is engaging with. So God is coming back to Abraham and he's saying, look, my provision is not accomplished with evil. And I am demonstrably setting myself apart from all the other competing gods who would claim uh, that the ends justify the means. Because for me, they do not. Uh, I do not need to do evil things. Now, how do you, how do you think about that? When, well, what is evil today? Well, anything that doesn't bring life is evil. You get a pretty good taste of it when you just flip the fruits of the Spirit. Right? Love, joy, peace, patience. Hatred, anger, jealousy, wrath, bitterness, lack of forgiveness. God doesn't need to use any of those things. 
in order to provide for you. He doesn't need to use your greed. He doesn't need to use sexual immorality. There is no evil that he needs to use in order to provide for you. Now, wouldn't these have been things that would have been helpful to know when we were younger? (laughs) Because what happens, and we've seen it over and over here in Genesis, is we go into this chaos sometimes ill-informed, not having a worldview established for us or a pattern of behavior that has relied on God and trusted him to provide and protect for us. And so what we do is we go into the chaos, a corrupted chaos, and we do things our own way in order to provide and protect for ourselves. And yet, oftentimes, they're associated with things that are evil. God, God doesn't operate that way. And, and he simply comes back and he says, if you just trust me, your provision and your protection will be taken care of. And he is demonstrably stating this to uh, Abraham and forming his worldview, but also with the intent to form our worldview. Uh, another thing that you see from this story here is that protection from evil, it, it comes from the Lord. Okay, now, he's asked us to go into a corrupted uh, chaos, right? So we are going to experience a certain amount of corruption, which we brought on ourselves, okay? That corruption that we experience, the fact that we don't immediately fall over and die is a gracious gift from God. When Adam and Eve ate the fruit, uh, the punishment was death. But God allowed there to be time in order for us to experience, uh, well, a little bit of the corruption in order that we might, it's really, Brandon, a, a lot in line with what you were saying of why do we experience some of this evil? Well, it's so that we have a taste of that and we turn, we repent and choose life. Because God is not wishing that any would perish, but that all would come into salvation with him. And so we have this, he's asked us to go in. We are definitely going to feel the corruption. And when I say feel the corruption, what I mean is you will be bound to corruption. That's what it is. You will be bound to this corruption. And so, uh, but this, this corruption, we're going to feel it. We're going to experience a little bit of this evil. But the ultimate protection from the evil, it comes from God. Look at what he does with Isaac. Here, Isaac is bound. He is placed. He is ready to be killed. Now, we might read that story in the modern sense and go, oh my goodness, he didn't do anything to deserve that. No, the fact that he's just alive in a ca- corrupted chaos puts him on the altar in a bound state. That's simply how it is. And so here, all of a sudden, what does God do? God is the one who protects him from the ultimate evil of a father killing his son. Right? We hear stories about this, you know, whether it's mothers or fathers or, or relatives, just, just, oh, I think I heard something from God, and, and so I killed my... That's evil, And this story is meant to shock us and to get us to pause, question, and wonder, why would this story, why would God be asking him to do this? Well, it's to demonstrably demonstrate how evil it is and for him to come back and say, I don't need to use evil in order to accomplish provision and protection from the very evil. So uh, here he is, uh, and this is the beautiful thing. You see that resurrection is the ultimate 
provision and protection. I mean, that's beautiful. That's what Hebrews 11 is what Abraham's confidence in, is in. Uh, think about your resurrection. You're going to be in an uncorrupted state. You are not able to die. You will have, uh, so if you're not able to die, what that means is you will have everything provided for you and you will, you will have protection, the ultimate protection. So here God is, he's coming down and saying, I'm trustworthy. I'm the one who's able to deliver and I have promised it to you. And the ultimate uh, test here is the ultimate penalty of death. I'm even able to provide and protect against death itself. Well, that'd be a good, good spot for an amen. Man, that is good news. And so okay, there, these are a few of the things I think that we can get from this story. But, but let's go a little bit deeper because as we understand, Scripture is layered. Well, we've talked a little bit about Abraham discovering God, right? God being able to kind of come down, be in relationship with him, and help form his worldview. And, and he's supposed to be able to pass that worldview on. Well, let's think about this for a second because this book was written not in Abraham's day. Okay, Abraham's maybe 2000 BC-ish, okay, with a strong emphasis on the ish, all right? Uh, Moses leads his people out of slavery or bondage to Egypt right around 1446. Well, that's not an ish, that's a pretty, pretty good approximate date for that. They begin the conquest of the land, but, uh, well, they have the wanderings, right, coming out, and then they go into the land. Well, during that wandering period, that's when Moses writes the Torah. The Torah, it's the law. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. Have you ever wondered why Genesis was included in the Torah? It's not like there's a whole lot of laws in there. In fact, it's pretty heavy on the stories. Well, uh, the way that you need to read the, read the law and read Genesis is illustration and instruction. Be paying attention because the stories that are chosen in Genesis are illustrations of the instruction or the laws that are to come. And so as you're reading along uh, in, in Exodus, uh, Numbers, uh, Levit Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, what you're going to see is you're going to hear a law that is given and if you are paying attention in Genesis, you'll be able to go, oh, I remember a story about such and such. We see it in the, in the there's this, such a strange phrase, right? Remember when Canaan gets, uh, well, Ham gets cursed because he goes in and sees his father's nakedness? Well, we see that same phrase used in Leviticus, and it's talking about a child having a carnal knowledge or relations with the mother. And so we read that in Leviticus and we go, wait a minute, I remember hearing that story about Ham uh, seeing his father's nakedness, which means in Leviticus that Ham probably slept with Noah's wife, his mother. Okay? Now, you could understand, it, it, it actually gives you a little bit of a, well, no wonder he got cursed. Right? But these are the types of illustrations that when you see something happening in the law and you go back to Genesis and you go, ooh, there's an illustration of that very law that is taking place, 
Well, we have a number of these things happening in this passage right here. Uh, I'm, I think, I hope the readings are over here. I'm gonna, we read these for the Lutheran Church. They have a readings section. And here are some of the readings that we read today. In Exodus chapter 13, it says this. The Lord spoke to Moses, set apart to me every firstborn male, the first offspring of every womb among the Israelites, whether human or animal, it is mine. When the Lord brings you into the land of the Canaanites, as he swore to you and to your fathers and gives it to you, then you must give to the, over to the Lord the first offspring of every womb. Every firstling of a beast that you have, the males, will be the Lord's. Every firstling of a donkey you must redeem with a lamb, and if you do not redeem it, then you must break its neck. Every firstborn of your sons you must redeem. In the future, when your son asks you, what is this, you are to tell him, with a mighty hand the Lord brought us out from Egypt, from the land of slavery. When Pharaoh stubbornly refused to release us, the Lord killed all the firstborn of the land of Egypt, from the firstborn of the people to the firstborn of the animals. That is why I am sacrificing to the Lord the first male offspring of every womb, but all my firstborn sons I redeem. It will be for you a sign on your hand and for the frontlets of your forehead, for with a mighty hand the Lord brought us out of Egypt. Again, in Numbers it says this, chapter 18, everything devoted in Israel will be yours. The firstborn of every womb which they present to the Lord, whether human or animal, will be yours. Nevertheless, the firstborn sons you must redeem, and the firstborn males of unclean animals you must redeem. And those that must be redeemed you are to redeem when they are a month old, according to your estimation, for five shekels of silver, according to the sanctuary shekel. But you must not redeem the firstborn of a cow or a sheep or a goat. They are holy. You must splash their blood on the altar and burn their fat for an offering made by fire for a pleasing aroma to the Lord. Why? So that y'all can party. Okay? And their meat will be yours just as the breast and the right hip of the raised offering is yours. You see, God does holy things around food. I mean, we just, you just have to know that. When you're in the Old Testament and you are seeing, and you're going, wow, this is crazy. It's very bloody. It's very, oh, what's happening? All these animals are... It's so that you can feast with one another and with the Lord. And remember, spiritual things are happening in this meal that you need to remember. All the raised offerings of the holy things that the Israelites offered to the Lord, I have given to you and to your sons and daughters with you as a perpetual ordinance. It is a covenant of salt forever before the Lord for you and for your descendants with you. Again, in Luke chapter 2, it says this. Now, when the time came for their purification, according to the law of Moses, Joseph and Mary brought Jesus up to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. Just as it is written in the law of the Lord, every firstborn male will be set apart to the Lord or consecrated. This is the consecration of the firstborn male. And to offer a sacrifice according to what is specified in the law of the Lord, a pair of doves or two young pigeons. You see, what's happening here is that this, this story has been selected by Moses, by God, inspiring Moses to teach a community of faith something as an illustration. 
that there's a purification or a consecration of the firstborn male, that you have been sent into a corrupted chaos, but that corrupted chaos costs you something. It costs you your life, and your life needs to be redeemed. And this illustration that we see here in Genesis, uh, here Isaac is being brought back, or you might even say bought back from the dead by the cost of a ram. And it is an illustration of what Israel is going to receive as a law because Israel is just like Isaac. They are in bondage, slavery to Egypt. And God said, by a mighty outstretched hand, I am bringing you out and redeeming you, but it is going to cost you. Your freedom is going to cost you, and you're going to have to pay for it. And here's what we're going to do. I'm not going to charge you the cost of a life. No, not a human life. No, what, what I want you to do is to understand that, that there has been a cost, that in order to bring you out of slavery, it's going to cost this lamb. Think about the Passover lamb, right? That, that night when God delivered his people, he said, if you just put the blood of the lamb over your doorposts, you will be able to experience freedom. But I don't ever want you to forget that because it's not just a one-time thing coming out of slavery, no, because Jesus always invites us to go beyond the physical and to understand the spiritual, that the, the physical bondage is one thing, but there's spiritual bondage as well, and that spiritual bondage puts you right on the altar, just like Isaac. And so he wants his people to know for all time, to celebrate for all time, the redemption of the firstborn child. Well, this is why Jesus goes through that. That's what the Luke passage is saying. He's going through this, this passage, and he too is demonstrating that he's under the law and that he needs to be redeemed. And so this 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 story that has been selected to form the worldview of a new community of faith called Israel isn't just for them, it's also for another formation of a faith community called the church. Because we too are in bondage. We're just like Isaac. We are on top of the altar in bondage and slavery to our sins. And what is the just penalty for our sins? It's death. But God doesn't want us to die. He wants to redeem us by the blood of the Lamb. And so what does he do? He purchases us for the redemption of our lives by providing a Lamb, his Son. As a substitute for our death, he comes in and he redeems us back to life. You see, this story is there. Anybody who reads this story, and there's plenty of them do, that don't have faith, that point the finger at God and go, this is a horrible story. I can't believe he would advocate for a sacrifice of a child, misses the point that they are also on the altar. Folks, that would be my invitation for you today to consider that as you go through this life, that you understand that you're just like Isaac, 
you also have been bound by a corrupt, chaotic world, which includes your own flesh. And the penalty for that is death. But here Jesus has come and he has said, Behold, what does John say at the baptism? Behold the Lamb of God who has come to take away the sins of the world. Well, he, he's bought you with a price. When you go to 1 Corinthians chapter 6, you read all that it means to be bought with the blood of Christ. Did you read Galatians last week? I hope you read Galatians and that you discovered a little bit of what the layering of that Genesis story was about. And this week I want you to read 1 Corinthians because he's saying on the basis of that redemption, don't be involved in things that put you right back on the altar. Why would you do that? Why would you go right back into slavery when you've been bought out of the slavery? Well, that's, that's my appeal to you today. That as you come in and you hear this story, that you'll allow God to form a worldview for you that, that has confidence that he will provide and protect you. And the ultimate provision and protection that he's offered is his son. And because his son has bought you, that he has bought you with his son's blood, you will be able to experience the resurrection. That you'll never have to fear and worry or give in to this uncomfortable nonsense about going into the chaos and having to provide and protect yourself. God's done it all. Father, that's my prayer for myself, that, I, that, that as we get to, to know you more, we see just how trustworthy you are. Father, and then as we take that trustworthiness, that, that we live it for ourselves so that other people might be able to see the reflected glory of you in our lives and also be brought into relationship with you just as you promised Abraham that through us, through his descendants of faith, that all families would be blessed. So, Father, will you be faithful to the promise? Will you allow others, our family, our friends, our neighbors, and our coworkers to, to be able to see the life that is offered in you? We ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.